brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Rep Radio on time, on target. Jack Murphy is back here with me this episode. I'm Ian Scotto. Uh, before we get right into Joseph, our guest writer for Soft Rep, I wanted to tell you about our latest sponsor. We're really excited to have them on board. If you listened to the last episode of Alex Hollings, um, I didn't really explain what you could do with this promo code for Pelican. So I'm going to get into all of that for you guys. Pelican is hard-sided coolers, all made in the USA completely. Most competitors, including Yeti, make most of their stuff overseas. Pelican is an actual lifetime warranty and a wide variety of sizes and colors for all of their coolers. 10 different sizes and 11 different color schemes. I was looking at all the colors on the website. Really cool. So much to choose from. Easy pull hard latches that aren't rubber bands like the other guys. Pelican is a trusted brand since 1976. Their 70 quart cooler can hold ice up to nine days. That's pretty incredible. Their light, other coolers weigh 30% more on average. And this is really awesome. They have a built in bottle opener under the lid. Ergonomic handles make them easier to carry. So check out PelicanCoolers.com. Now, Pelican Coolers are sold everywhere. They're up on Amazon, but we have a coupon code exclusively for their website. So go to PelicanCoolers.com, and here's what you'll get with our promo code. You're going to get a free 22-ounce tumbler. You add the tumbler to your cart with the order, use the promo code SOFTREP, and you're going to get that tumbler absolutely free. You could find that in the drinkware section at the top. So whatever cooler you want to get, put that in your cart, then go to the drinkware section and add that 22-ounce tumbler. Use the coupon code SOFTREP. You're going to get that tumbler for free. But once again, that's exclusively for PelicanCoolers.com. So go to PelicanCoolers.com right now. Get any cooler that you want and then add that 22-ounce tumbler. Use the promo code SOFTREP. Get on that right now. With that, back on the podcast is Joe LaFave. I'm trying to remember what uh, episode you were last on. You were previously on about, what has it been, like two months? Yeah, I think it was October. You know what? October last year. As as we're speaking, I'm going to look it up. Was that long ago? No, I couldn't. I think so. You were last on on 394. And right now we're up to 421. These are just flying by, I have to say. Yeah, really. So... For those who haven't listened to that episode, um, Joe is a writer for News Rep, uh, does a lot of pieces on finance and all different things. Uh, I mean, the, the latest piece of yours is the walls around Venezuela's socialist Maduro regime are crumbling. I think this is a, a subject that's of great importance and 
that that people like re- reading about because uh, I mean I think in a lot of people's minds, at least certain people in America have um, romanticized the whole socialist uh, utopia thing, and we're seeing how it's working out in Venezuela, which has not been very good. Yeah, it's a it's a horrible humanitarian crisis that's been going on for several years down there, and we're starting to see the other countries around Venezuela, like Colombia and Brazil really starting to step up and say enough's enough because what's happening is there's been a mass uh, migration of Venezuelan refugees fleeing the country into the neighboring countries to try to seek healthcare and, you know, find food and jobs because the conditions of Venezuela are so poor um, because there's no money left. That's really creating humanitarian crises in those other countries like Colombia, for example, um, is really hard pressed to take care of all of these new refugees. And last year, the Navy deployed the USNS Comfort, which is one of our two hospital ships, down to South America at the request of the Colombian government uh, to provide medical support and humanitarian aid. They also made a few other stops in the Caribbean. Um, It's not the first time that they've deployed to the Caribbean for these kind of missions, but this time it was more or less explicitly at the, uh, the request of Colombia. Yeah, I was having a conversation just yesterday with somebody about uh, what's going on in Venezuela, and he was saying the situation at the Colombia-Venezuela border is destabilizing to the point where Colombians are actually crossing the border into you know what's become kind of a no-man's land and uh, allegedly um, illegally mining, taking control of various you know mineral mining resources that uh, exist in that border area and uh, illegally mining the resources. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, like you said, it's a full blown humanitarian crisis down there at this point. What I thought was interesting or maybe not interesting is the right word, but, but terrifying is a couple months ago, there were some reports that there's been a new rash of piracy incidents that have mm-hmm. occurred off the coast of Venezuela. And compared to the piracy we saw about 10 years ago out uh, by the Horn of Africa, these Venezuelan pirates are a lot. Uh, more bloodthirsty. So they're just boarding ships, killing everyone on board, uh, taking all the food and the money and sinking the ship. They're not after a ransom. They're not after yeah. uh, political power. They're there to, to eat. Yeah, no, that that absolutely makes sense because there's an industry in Somalia and they realized they could get more money by uh, ransoming um, these people out who were insured by Lloyd's of London but then in uh, it was also true in West Africa a bit um, when that was going on around the, the Niger River Delta and all that kind of stuff. But if piracy explodes in the Caribbean um, because of Venezuela, it, it would make sense that they don't have that sort of, um, I guess you could say, business savvy that the Somalians have and that they would just loot the ship for and, and sell the ship itself or, or whatever cargo is on it and make money that way. Um, until they become more sophisticated makes a lot of sense actually. It's, I mean, it's pretty scary when you think about it because there are some islands off the coast of Venezuela that are pretty big tourist destinations, especially for people in South America. And, um, you know, when you have gangs of, I mean, I don't want to, you know, stoke fear or, or I haven't looked at it in a while, but just the reports that I was reading, just, it sounded pretty terrifying to go down there. Um, and, and then like what you were talking about on the border, you know, I've, I know that that, like you said, that no man's land kind of has developed over the last few years. And there's been a lot of uh, cross border activities from both 
both countries. I think recently Colombia took issue with some Venezuelan uh, or some yeah some Venezuelan National Guard soldiers crossing over into the border kind of at will. Um, so, like you said, it's really kind of broken down into a, a no man's land between those two countries. Is there any uh, indication from what you've been working on where the situation is going to go down there? I mean, is it going to head into like, I mean, it feels like we're almost there, but, you know, a full collapse of the of the state. So what I wrote about this week was kind of a twofold issue. One, uh, the U.S. Treasury issued more sanctions against some high ranking Venezuelan government officials and some high ranking Venezuelan business people who were caught in this currency exchange scheme. And it's kind of it's, it's kind of a technical like the way they were doing it is kind of technical. So I'll spare you the details, but they were essentially bribing the Venezuelan Treasury Department to operate this illegal scheme. And you know they siphoned like two point six billion dollars as like these seven people through these twenty three different business entities. You know over the course of their of their activities, scan, stole about two point six billion dollars from the Venezuelan people. So the U.S. Treasury just sanctioned them and those businesses. Uh, one of the big ones is a Venezuelan cable company named Globovision. So we sanctioned the the business mogul who runs that, and um, you know we're giving U.S. investors about a year to pull out of those sanctioned businesses. Wow. On the other hand, a new report just came out from Human Rights Watch and uh, an internal Venezuelan penal oversight uh, board that detailed the human rights abuses that security forces have been perpetrating against the Venezuelan military. And you've seen um, Venezuelan military personnel being arbitrarily detained, murdered, tortured, their families threatened, all because they either attempted to overthrow the government or they were believed to have been attempted to overthrow the government. And about eight months ago, the UN Human Rights Commission issued a similar report talking about how these same security forces and the Venezuelan military were committing these atrocities against their own people, you know, specifically arbitrary detention, uh, extrajudicial killings, and the fact that there's really no internal affairs service to investigate these. So they're really down there killing with, with impunity, I think was the report that I read. Um, so I'd like to think that we're kind of at the point where there's nothing, there's really nothing left to, to give. I mean, inflation's over, over 1 million percent there. There's been a, a mass influx or a mass outflux of people. So it, it does appear that the regime's col- collapsing. Hopefully these new reports that came out are going to aid other countries in the region to apply more pressure on Venezuela. You know, it'd be nice to see Brazil or Colombia, uh, you know, unify to either change the regime there or figure out a solution. And, you know, hopefully these sanctions have the desired effect, which is just to put more pressure on the Maduro regime and all the cronies that are in that regime to to back out. It's really tragic when you consider, you know, where Venezuela exists on the map and the the tremendous access to natural resources they have. And they've been a a prosperous country in the past. And it's just one of these things that didn't have to happen. If you were to compare it to, you know, like we mentioned Somalia earlier, there's a country that has deep, deep, deep problems. I mean, the institutions of government literally don't exist. Um, They don't have natural resources or they have some, but not much. Um, They're, they're just positioned poorly. um, uh, They're not set up for success. And to, to see this happen in a country like Venezuela, where there's really no reason why it should be happening. And and it's just rampant corruption and abuse by government. Um, 
you know, not to, not to get all political about it, you know, um, but you know, the proponents of socialism will say, you know, well, this isn't the failure of socialism. It's the failure of government. It's, it's government corruption. Well, that's true. The issue from my point of view is whether it's a socialist system or a capitalist system, when you have power centralized in a small group of people, a small group of elite, um, who start subverting the democratic process. And then that, that's what leads to the abuse, the corruption, uh, the theft of government assets, you know, the, the government nationalized all these assets and really what they did is they just privatized them for a small elite group in the government. And it's, it's just tragic to see it happen. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a political scholar by any means. And I, you know, I, I think people make arguments about socialism from the academic point of view, but when you see it in practice, like in Venezuela is, is socialism a hundred percent to blame for the conditions Probably not, yeah. but it sure as hell made it a lot easier for just a few bad dudes to just wreck millions of lives. Under the guise so, of nationalism and centralization and so on. Yeah, so it might not be – I mean I'm not, I'm not pro-socialism by any means, but I think it definitely set the stage. You know, It, it definitely made it easier for, for those bad dudes to get in there and, and get into power and then hold on to power like they have and just run it into the ground. No, I, I think you're just being objective. I, I do remember early on, um, probably what what would you say, like uh, six plus years ago when people in America were raving about like the lowering price of oil thanks to Venezuela, and it, it looks like that is just kind of a blip on the radar when you look at the bigger picture. Yeah, it was like right when uh, Hugo Chavez started, started getting kind of notoriety yep. here in the U.S. You know, we had like Oliver Stone went over there. Yep. And Danny Glover, uh, which is just bizarre to me, <laughs> but um, you know that we kind of started looking at Venezuela, and and I think a few academics and people, journalists, kind of said, "Oh, this is you know this is an example of of it working right," and then all of a sudden it just turned into a nightmare. Uh, around 2014 is when the collapse really started, and um, you know I, I've I dated a girl in college who's from Venezuela, and. You know, she reads a lot of what I what I write, and she just says, you know, it's 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 true because I have family down there, and it's it's really what's going on. It's just horribly sad for us. So, it, it's funny that you mentioned those celebrities because I just don't know what it is with um, a lot of these celebrities who are very into like sucking up to dictators, whether it's Putin or Kim Jong Un. Well, or- Oliver Stone went and hung out with Hugo Chavez, and after that, then he went and hung out with Putin. Yep, and he he made these like fluff pieces on these on these dictators about like how great they are. And it's like one of those times where like you're so far left, you're just a fucking idiot. You know, (laughs) I mean, I'm not I'm not, you know, I understand there are, you know, lefties out there who are good people and, you know, they mean well. And I would probably even agree with them on some issues. But I mean, Oliver Stone is just one of those moments where it's like, you know, listen, guy, you lost your mind. It really is like he's lost his mind. Lost his marbles. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, uh, you know, like that Dennis Rod, like you were talking about with Kim Jong Un, that Dennis Rodman thing. I was just like, does this guy have nothing better to do? Uh, that's I mean, Ian's there- boy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true, which is why I want to get him on the podcast and uh, discuss it at some point. Uh, but no, it, it's interesting that you were you were um, mentioning the um, pirate stuff because it kind of brings me to another subject that you wanted to get into: um, cruise ship crime victims and maritime law. I've been geeking out hard on maritime law for like the last year. I don't know why. You know, I, I, I read a lot of books about it and like I, I want to 
like talk about it. My poor wife, you know, she's in medical school in her fourth year. So her brain is all uh, medications and diagnoses and this stuff. And all I want to talk about is the, you know, the importance of the shipping container on world trade and how different maritime laws affect the price of milk in Hawaii. So it's been nice <laughs> at news rep to be given the freedom to really explore those topics. So cool. And so one of them I wanted to do was cruise ship. You know, we have a travel section, which I try to throw articles in uh, every now and then. And I just did two interviews over the weekend with um, some women who lived in Dubai and Russia, kind of about their experience living abroad. So that'll be going up soon. That's very but cool. The, but the cruise ship thing, um, I read a book about two years ago called uh, like The Truth About Cruise Ships or something like that by a guy named Jay uh, Herring, who was a cruise ship officer. I just was like really interested. So I kind of dug deep um, into the laws that govern, you know, what would happen to you if you are the victim of a crime on a cruise ship? And the answer is a lot more gray than I thought it would be. Um, so, for example, the, the biggest misconception people have with cruise ships, especially cruise ships that leave from American ports, is that the vessels are American. And they're really not. Almost um, never, yeah. Yeah, so they what they do is these cruise ship companies, they use what's called a flag of convenience, which is they register the vessel in countries like uh, Jamaica, Panama. Liberia. Uh, what do you say, sir? Uh, I think Liberia is one. Gibraltar is another one. Yeah, Liberia is a big one. You'll see like a lot of merchant ships are based out of Liberia. So it's these different kind of, I guess, third world countries, you could say, that they allow the flag convenience. So their government says, hey, you can reg- register any vessel you want in our country. And I think some of the countries are landlocked. So they don't <laughs> even have like a reason to have vessels, but they can register them. But essentially, if a, vet- if a vessel's registered, if a cruise ship's registered in, say, Panama, and you leave on a cruise ship registered in Panama out of the port of New Orleans, and once you get 12 miles from the continental shelf of the U.S., you're essentially being governed by Panamanian laws. Wow. So that means if you're the victim of a crime, it doesn't really matter where your passport's from. It matters who has jurisdiction at the time the crime was committed. So on open ocean, the jurisdiction is going to go first to these countries that do the flag convenience. Uh, the issue with that gets into a lot of these countries are not equipped to investigate international crimes like this. Yeah. So the master of the vessel, the captain, you know, he can report it to, you know, the Liberian version of the FBI, the LBI, I guess. And, you know, they're probably not going to be interested in the case. So then he's kind of left with two other options. And the other option, the first other option is wait till he gets to his next port of call and report the person there. But depending on where the crime was committed and what country they're going to, that port of call, there's a very good possibility that local authorities aren't going to want to take that case because they're going to say this is this case is a loser. Number one, didn't, we didn't occur in our jurisdiction. And number two, there's no way we can prosecute it. You know, we have to have permission to go on board the vessel and interview witnesses. And that's not going to happen when the vessel has a 12-hour turnaround time from the time they dock to the time they they uh, pull up anchor. So then you're kind of only left with one other option, which is to report the, the crime when you get back to the States. Were you, and you reported were you ever to pull up any like uh, case studies of where there have been like a rape or a murder on a cruise ship? I have to believe both of those things have happened numerous times. 
uh, over the years? And, and do, were you able to like see how those were handled? So, yeah. So, um, I don't remember the specific case, but I talked to, uh, this guy named Martin Davis, who's the head of the Tulane university in new Orleans, their maritime law center. And I asked him, I said, you know, what, what normally happens with these cases? And I said, for example, you know, what happens if you're a rape victim on a cruise ship? And he said that normally what happens is it's reported to the, the local authorities back in the States. Um, there is a piece of legislation that I think requires local authorities to turn it over to the FBI. By the time that happens, there's usually little evidence left. Uh, the perpetrator's flown or escaped, absconded. So normally these cases are tried in civil court. So the victim will take the cruise line to court Mm -hmm. um, and try to get restitution. But depending on which cruise line is, it depends what court you have to file it in. So, uh, for example, like Royal Caribbean is based out of Miami. So if you are a rape victim on a cruise ship, on a Royal Caribbean ship, and you live in Nebraska, well, you have to fly to Miami to file it in that court, the civil complaint. And then you have to go back. Um, depending on the severity of the case, if it's a smaller case, the cruise line's likely to just pay out to mm-hmm. just say, hey, we'll give you a settlement. But these big cases like uh, these murders and rapes, they're going to go to trial because they know that they have a pretty good probability of winning because there's so little evidence. And they're they're not required to turn over um, a ton of evidence either. Like for instance, I mean, there's no one on the cruise ship to, say, administer a rape kit to a victim and collect forensic evidence and all this sort of stuff. Right. And the cruise ship isn't going to stay in port. So if if a rape ha- – so there was a case a couple years ago where uh, it was two men. They were a couple, and they were got into a drunken argument. And one of the men uh, climbed out on the life raft, on the lifeboat crane, and eventually fell overboard and, and died. Oh, wow. And – and his his boyfriend or husband at the time said the reason he was so upset was because we got into an argument. I called cruise ship security. They came to the room and started harassing him because he was homosexual. Um, so that was the argument that the the that the partner made, and he filed a a uh, you know a lawsuit against the the cruise line. And there was video evidence of it. You can watch it on on uh, on the internet, which is like the most horrific like thing to watch, you know, like I, I consider myself a pretty tough individual, you know, from working in the emergency room and the ambulance. Like I've seen some pretty messed up stuff, but there's something about watching that guy get on that, that, uh, life raft crane and just fall into like the darkness where it's just like eats at your soul. You're just like, Oh, that's, that's like the worst, worst death imaginable. But anyway, they, they ended up filing it in a, um, you know, in civil court, and I'm not sure what the outcome is, but I know the cruise. I know for a fact the cruise line fought that uh, pretty hard. And the reason they have a lot of room to to stand on is because you know when you when you buy your ticket, you're essentially signing over, um, you know, a, a code of conduct and and a, a release of liability. So no matter what the cruise line did or did not to push that guy out to the to the crane of the life raft. I mean, he violated the rules, which state you will not, you know, go over the railing. Um, it's uh, just so interesting. I, I mean, I've done some writing for for uh, our website in the past about um, a little bit about maritime security, um, the maritime security industry. People are doing like counter piracy contracting, 
and uh, and also some of the stuff that was going on up in the Arctic Circle. And I mean, I just find this subject just as fascinating as you because it's not that what's going on out there is necessarily nefarious or, or even secret. It's just what's happening in the maritime world is often it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's out in the middle of the ocean and there's no real visibility on it um, for, you know, the average person. Um, and as you point out, it often falls into these somewhat nebulous legal gray zones um, where it's not totally clear what, what the law says. Especially when the case, like, like and I, I agree with you, especially when the case is like a loser, you know, when you're just like, there's no way we're going to win this case and we're going to be able to prosecute. Yeah. So why even bother taking it on? Right. Um, so the good news is for, since you're interested in that tomorrow, or actually tonight I'm leaving uh, where I live now, I'm going down to New Orleans tomorrow. I'll be interviewing um, Professor Davis again, this time about international maritime terrorism. And we're going to talk about how uh, global finance and, and different financial markets are influenced by shipping and global trade, specifically maritime shipping. That's awesome. And then after, after that, I'm going over to uh, the Coast Guard headquarters down there in New Orleans, which is their district, and they are responsible for not only the Mississippi River, they're not they they do stuff in the Mississippi River, the Port of New Orleans, and then the Gulf of Mexico, and they have a lot of uh, the Port of New Orleans is the big, um, you know, shipping center, and there's a lot of oil pipelines, so they do a lot of stuff. They have a they have a giant mission down there. The Coast Guard does, you know, they do search and rescue, obviously, but they do a lot of pipeline security. They do a lot of uh, drug interdiction stuff. So they have a really important mission down there in the Gulf. And um, I'm talking with a Coast Guard 06 tomorrow to kind of get a feel for what their mission is. And then hopefully in the future, you know, go be, go be able to go down there and spend some more time with them and really get a sense of, um, you know, what, what exactly they do. This, That's this kind of is, always, oh, go ahead. I, no, sorry. You, could you just finish what you're saying? It's always kind of like, that's how I kind of got started with the National Guard. It was just like, I know nothing. I want to know everything. Let me come. So I'm hoping to use that approach with the Coast Guard and just be like, hey, I think, you know, from the little I know, I think this is a, a vital mission to, to national security and I want to know everything about it. And I think there's the potential for some really cool stories to come out of there. Which, by the way, we'll get an update on that National Guard story in a little bit. That's what we spoke about last time you were on. Um, but I was just wondering, I mean, this is a fascinating subject, but to be honest, that I have never really thought about before. Was, was there anything that just sparked your curiosity uh, to dive deeper into this? So I, I grew up in Florida on a barrier island. So I've grown up around like maritime stuff. I should, I should probably articulate that better, but maritime, you know, maritime <laughs> That's all good, stuff. Man. you know how it is here. We're super casual. People know yeah. what you mean. Man, I, I, I got to say, I was listening to that to episode uh, 420 with Alex yesterday. God, Which was as it. casual as it got. I feel like every time I talk with Alex, like, I do try to bring it back to an actual subject, but it ends up being like, he says something, side tangent from me, side tangent from Alex. Then we get onto a completely different topic, and I'm like, what were we talking about again? Oh, yeah. But um, no, thank you, man. I, I appreciate it. But but yeah, so so just growing up in Florida is what sparked your interest? Yeah. And I, you know, one of the first books I ever read was, uh, the perfect storm by Sebastian Junger. And, um, you know, I, he's one of my favorite authors and I, and the perfect storm is one of the, an amazing book. So like two years ago, I was looking for a nonfiction book to read and I picked up another one called, uh, into the raging sea by Rachel Slade about the sinking of the SS El Faro. Um, it was a U.S. flag vessel cargo ship steaming from Jacksonville to San Juan, Puerto Rico. And they went down in hurricane Joaquin, 
And uh, this was 2015 that they went down. So it's pretty recent. And she really dug deep into why the ship sank and about the maritime industry. And I just got super interested and just became a super maritime nerd. And the more I learned, the more I realized how important it was. And, um, you know, I, I was hoping that the, some of the readers would find it as fascinating as I do. And I think um, from where I, you know, from my foxhole, looking at the, the numbers that the pieces about maritime stuff are getting, I think that it's definitely something that people are interested in. And, you know, and our, as a journalist and news rep, you know, because we're fortunate to have that, uh, you know, that we have the subscribers, you know, I definitely want to deliver stories and content to them that they're going to enjoy. You know, I, and I don't feel like I, I feel like I have the freedom to do that. And, you know, it's nice that the, the readers are able to give so much like immediate feedback and you you know, it's not just internet trolls either. You know, it's, it's people whose opinion you really value and you want to deliver, you know, what they want. Yeah. And, and I like to see you guys pursue what you're passionate about too. Um, it's, uh, I'm really interested to see what you come up with as far as like, uh, maritime terrorism and counterterrorism, because we haven't really seen, um, terrorism strike this industry cruise liners since uh what 1987 was it the achille lauro in the mediterranean ocean yeah so it's yeah, been was, it's been a while a small vessel too and i mean i i actually uh wrote a novel um where the the climax of the novel takes place on a super cruise liner and it's just a massive battle that takes place on this thing because these ships as you know joe they're i mean they're like little cities now right you know, it's like an urban built up environment, <laughs> you know? Um, so you, you can just imagine what a, what a nightmare scenario that would be if, um, you know, say something like, uh, the Mumbai attack were to happen, but the attackers were to hit a cruise liner. I mean, it would be a nightmare. Uh, it's like everyone would die. I mean, there's nowhere to go. There's yeah. nowhere to go. And as far as I know that cruise ships care, like cruise ships aren't armed. They're not vessels of war. They don't have, yeah. um, as, as far as I, you know, I'm not an expert on it, but as far as I know, they, they might have a few sidearms, but that's going to be it. So Legally, get, I don't think they can be. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you're, I think you're right, Jack. I don't think they can be armed given, um, you know, their status as, as, as passenger vessels. So if you got, you know, a fire team on board with, with automatic weapons, I mean, it would be, it, it would be uh, horrific. So I'm, I'm curious to find out what's being done in that industry to, to combat that. You know, and I hope that something is being done. I hope it's not just everyone sitting back and going, oh, well, nothing's going to happen. You know, those ships are too big to, to attack. Well, you, this is kind of interesting. I, uh, I was talking to someone who works uh, rail infrastructure in Europe. Um, this was about a year ago. So it's heavily involved in, uh, in rail. And um, he told me that they're not putting a lot of um, counterterrorism security measures around rail infrastructure in Europe. Mm-hmm. The reason being is that they feel that it would draw more attention to it as a target. So right now they're just kind of like go along to get along in the sense of like we're not being targeted now. I mean, there haven't been like rail line bombings um, so often, uh, you know, since like the 1980s, I guess. We haven't really seen too much of that. So they're just kind of like we're just going to hope we continue to slide under the radar yeah, fingers crossed. Oh no, I'm sorry. 2004. There's uh in Spain. That's right, Spain. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of the one where they took hostages and like the GSG nine had to go get them. 
Oh, was that GSG nine or was it the Dutch? That was also in the eighties where they, um, they had the fighter jets break the sonic barrier right above the train car. Oh, just as, yeah. Just as the Dutch <laughs> rated it. Yeah. That's pretty, that's like, that's pretty ingenious, you know? Oh like yeah. That's like, that's like mission impossible, uh, type stuff right <laughs> yeah. there. That's pretty cool. But that's interesting. You know, I, I hope, hopefully the cruise line is, is taking a more proactive approach. Um, what I wrote about the other day, what they're not being really proactive about is the man overboard system. Mm-hmm. So a, a man overboard system is essentially a uh, heat camera net system that can de- automatically detect when something as warm as a body goes overboard and it alerts the crew automatically. Um, and most cruise lines don't have that. What they have is closed circuit television, which under uh, the current legislation is all they're required to have. Well, what do, what do so, they do if somebody goes overboard? Do they, uh, I mean, is there a smaller vessel they can launch? Will they turn the whole ship around? Or I, I, From what I understand, they, their procedure is to, uh, they cut their engines. Um, you know, and I, I know for Maritime Rescue, the, the um, standard practice is to go upwind or up draft of the of the victim and then float back to them so i think they might try that but depending on the schedule they might not you know they might just alert local authorities some cruise ships will have a launch you know they'll have like a small boat they can launch and they have people that are um you know trained in search and rescue like a lot of the cruise ships that are leaving from u.s ports have that ability you know there's a lot of cruise lines out of you know the mediterranean or asia that don't are not under the same strict, you know, maritime law or the, the, you know, search and rescue type stuff like that. Um, so normally they'll try to look for the victim, but if they can't, they'll just alert local authorities and get on with the trip because they're on such a time crunch to hit these ports. And, um, you know, they can't really afford to hang out and and search for a victim and they're not going to, they're not going to cancel a trip just to, just to try to find one person. I could Sorry. be wrong here, but uh, I mean, it's because it's been so long, probably about, what, eight years since the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden, somewhere around mm-hmm. that. Something like that. Um, what, wasn't maritime law discussed with how, you know, uh, just burying uh, bin Laden over uh, on the sea? Not, I, not that I don't recall that. I, I, I mean, I recall there were conversations about uh, Islamic tradition. Yeah, I remember that, too. You so. know, whether or not, I mean, which it's not an Islamic tradition. But, <laughs> to throw your body but, in the ocean. But that's yeah. what yeah. we said it was. Um, but I, I don't, yeah, Which, by the way, you uncovered why that was done. But I, I mean, my information was that the body's here in the United States. No, but I remember you talking about that. I and but we should get into that because that I didn't know. But but you talking about that his body was just riddled with bullet holes and that yeah. we didn't release pictures. But but so wait, his you do not believe that his body was dumped in the ocean? No, I don't buy that shit. Wow. Okay, I've never gotten into this with you. A totally different subject here. Yeah, I I mean this is I was told this years ago that um you know no he he was not buried at sea and I, I have actually talked to people who are on that aircraft carrier. Because somebody would have known. I mean, you think of the amount of people who work the deck of an aircraft carrier. You, they know when the helicopters are coming in, when planes are landing. I mean, that that kind of stuff can't be kept secret um, from the crew on the ship, anyway. Um, and I talked to people on that carrier, and they're like, "We all found out from Fox News." They were like, "Oh wow, yeah." They were like, "That's how we learned that Bin Laden was buried at sea from our ship," was from Fox News. And we're all looking at each other like, what? And I have never been able to uh, um, find a single person, witness, 
anybody, and you think of all of the leaks that have happened about the bin Laden raid and that whole mission, we haven't had a single person come forward to say, I saw the body go in the water, or I saw the body taken off the helicopter, or even I saw the helicopters come in that night. We haven't heard a single thing about that. There are some uh, emails that have come out through, I don't know if it came out through, I guess it came out through FOIA releases, where the the, um, captain of the ship, the admiral, is making some uh, obtuse comments to a package and was the package delivered. But again, who the hell knows what that is or is not. Um, And then there's, uh, and and again, this is just something else you can go and look at publicly. Um, When the Strat 4 emails leaked, um, one of the guys at uh, who runs Strat 4 was having an email exchange with somebody else, and he was saying the same thing. They, yeah, they brought the body back to the United States, and it's on ice at this like Army medical facility in Maryland. And that facility was also closed down that same year. Mm. That, that is, is crazy, man. I've never badass. heard this. I, I have like never heard it, this. That, that's interesting, man. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's just, There's no fucking way that they dumped the body at sea. Like That's just asinine that they would even claim that. It's one of those things on the surface. It's just like, come on. Like you gotta do better. You gotta do better than that. Like you're gonna pull the wool over our eyes here. The only thing I, I would uh think is kind of crazy is how many people have the information of where the body is if it's in the US and how do you stop one of those people from taking a picture and leaking it on the it's, internet? Well, he would be on ice, you know, in a in um you know, refrigerator somewhere. Um, and the people who maintain that facility probably don't even know what they have in there. Mm. Um, just chilling like a six pack of beer. Yep. (laughs) It's probably one of those things where it's probably like 20 people in the world know where that body is because it's all, it's compartmentalized information. But it's like, how do you stop one of those 20 people from taking a picture anonymously and putting it out on the internet? You know, it's almost like when we had Dow Comstock on, right? There were only what, four or five people on that mission. One of them leaks it to a journalist. How do you stop one of these people from anonymously leaking the photo and, and no one would ever know. No one would know who did it, you know? Well, I mean, we do we, we do keep secrets in this country. And I, I mean, I think the secrecy comes from compartmentalization and just not very many people are read into it uh, to begin with. Um, there are programs, and it's really weird to think about that there are classified programs where, you know, maybe 20 to 40 people in the entire world know of that program. That's it. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, Jack, because when I, when I worked at Lockheed, I worked on this program called uh, Clio. And I don't know. I know it was a DO, I know it was a government customer. I don't know who it was, but I don't know what the satellite does. I don't know where it went. Um, I don't know what kind of payload was on it. And we were the ones who built it. And it was very secret. And uh, the guys from the program were like handing out Clio swag. Like I have a polo shirt that says <laughs> Clio. And someone asked me, they're like, what is that? I'm like, I don't have a fucking idea, man. Like, it's, it's up there. I don't know what it does. But it was so compartmentalized that the engineers who were building the propulsion system for it and putting it together, we were just like, well, I don't know. Yeah, they don't know what the platform does. Yeah, it's like, I hope it's something good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting talking to people in aerospace, um, you know, who work on, you know, rocket projects and satellites and stuff like that. Just like you said, I mean, the, the platforms themselves are highly classified and, uh, and, and just, they, no one's talking about them outside of a skiff. So, yeah, 
That's crazy, man. I, I didn't know we were going to get into this, but that's why I love doing the podcast. We get into all different things. We're kind of doing um, like a news show here of, of different topics that, that you've been reading into. So the second topic you were shooting at me that we'd like to get into is uh, I was unaware of, of how crazy this situation is right now, that it is now the second largest outbreak of Ebola in history with over 600 yep. patients. And that's going on right now as we speak. Yeah, the, I, I'm very highly caffeinated today. It's my only vice. Same here. Well, I have this venti, uh, venti Starbucks uh, iced coffee in front of me, which, as you saw, Jack, they wrote my name as the the number eight na eight na eight na. Yeah, that's, I saw that on, on, uh, on Facebook. <laughs> eight na. That's that's my new name. But no, I'm also highly caffeinated. <laughs> Ready to rock? No, this. In all seriousness, though, this Ebola outbreak is uh, it's the, yeah, it's the second largest in history. And it's really the first time that we've seen kind of the perfect storm of a shitty situation. Um, so on the one hand, you have the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a, a really large country in Central Africa or North Central Africa. Um, and they've had Ebola outbreaks before, but they've never had it on the eastern side where it's occurring right now. But yeah, eastern side where it's occurring right now in those provinces. So you have people that live there that are already unfamiliar with the virus and are just suspicious and they don't understand how it's transmitted and there's a lot of teams from the u.s the cdc sent teams over there uh, usaid sent teams over there uh, the world health organization has teams over there the international rescue committee has teams over there. there's a lot of uh, ngos and um, different governments over there trying to educate the population treat the patients prevent the spread track the virus um so that's going on right there so the first issue was that we talked about last time was that these local pseudo-Islamic militia groups were coming over from Uganda and attacking these aid workers. And um, that is still happening. So that's, not, that's number one that's making it a bad situation. The, just the level of regional violence from, from these militia groups is making it very dangerous for these healthcare professionals to get in there and do their jobs. But then we've seen kind of an explosion of civil unrest in the Democratic Republic of Congo around their presidential elections. So you had two groups. You had the group that was, and I'm not an expert on this, and I'm not going to get into who's who, but essentially you had the group that was in charge, then you had the opposition group. And the group that was in charge said, hey, we're going to suspend voting in these areas that are affected by Ebola because we don't want people to catch the virus. Well, those same areas that are affected by Ebola happen to be very highly populated with the opposition to that guy. So they all said, well, this is bullshit, dude. You're, you're doing this so that we don't go and vote, and you're trying to suppress our vote. So then the local populace kind of turned against the Ebola workers, and they, there was a case of they stormed a uh, Ebola treatment center wow. where they were holding patients who were suspected of being um, contaminated or being exposed to the virus. They stormed that, and like 26 patients absconded. Uh, lo- luckily, they were able to track most of them down, but... Um, after that incident, different NGOs said, "All right, we're done. So we're not. We, it's too dangerous for too dangerous for us to work here." Um, so it's really the perfect storm of bad situations making a complicated response effort in an area with limited infrastructure even harder. Um, and it's really been, and what I find the most interesting about it is, it's really been a test of humanity's ability to respond to disease outbreaks during an armed conflict. And we've had 
different diseases outbreak in different wars. Like I think in World War One and, and two, more soldiers died from uh, medical conditions than, than bullets or, you know, the same number or a good majority of them or a minority. You can check my numbers there. But this is the first time that we've seen, you know, but those outbreaks were directly related to the conditions that the troops were in in their close proximity. But this is really the first time that we've seen a standalone outbreak um, be the response be influenced by outside uh, conflict. And to be frank, the, the international community is kind of failing. You know, this outbreak, when you and I last talked, I think it was 200-something patients, and now it's up to 620, give or take. You know, there's been, um, I think, more than – there's been 383 deaths related to Ebola. Wow. So the the outbreak is is spreading, and there's, you know, there's new cases every day. Um and it's you know, again, I mean, one of these situations where there Ebola can be treated and contained with right. proper health care. So after the 2014 outbreak in West Africa, you know, the international community kind of gathered around and said, OK, how can we treat this and how can we prevent the spread of this? And they developed really good systems to treat patients and to manage symptoms and attract potential patients and to quarantine patients. That was all developed four or five years ago. But the problem is because of the violence in the DRC, they can't implement mm-hmm. it. And I just remember at that outbreak in 2014, I mean, the, the news co- coverage about it was so hyperbolic. But I think it was because of the fact that we only saw this in Africa. And when it came to the U.S., people were freaking out. At, Look at all these deaths in Africa, but it's obviously going to be treated very differently yeah. in the U.S. I think we only had one death. Yeah, of that I, I think African American right. guy, and that was it. I, I don't. Uh, do, do you remember Joe? I think that was the only death in America, and people were acting like this was going to be uh, a pandemic in the U.S. And it was. It turned out to be a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of outrage. I think for headlines. Yeah, well, Ebola's. Oh, go ahead, Jack. Uh, I, I was just going to say, yeah, but uh, that we know how to handle it here in the United States better. So I mean, we're not living in third world conditions, thankfully. But uh, go ahead, Joe. So Ebola, the, the, I guess the, the silver lining to Ebola is it kills so fast, the outbreaks normally burn themselves out after, you know, a few hundred patients or, you know, a, 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 a relatively small amount of patients because of the fact that um, it kills people so fast. The virus has, it's hard for the virus to, to transport hosts, you know, that a virus's main goal is not to kill, it's to replicate. So the virus is always searching for a host that it can live in without killing the host and, and multiply and multiply. Uh, in humans, Ebola is very deadly, and, and it tends to kill humans pretty fast. So the outbreaks tend to, to burn themselves out pretty quick. That's kind of the silver lining of it. But what I think is interesting about this outbreak is, you know, consider what if this wasn't an Ebola outbreak? What if this was an outbreak of a new strain of smallpox that's not vaccinatable? Or what if it's a strain of the flu and what if it occurs in a similar situation? You know, then you're going to see how, you know, political conflict within a one country and, you know, different militias can create the stage for a pandemic to occur. So in that case, it's, you know, hopefully, you know, I don't know what the policy course correction needs to be to, to fight this outbreak, but I think this is really going to be an acid test of how NGOs and the governments of, of the countries are going to come together and, and decide you know, how, how do we fight an outbreak when the citizenry is up in arms and there's militia groups? Because that's a that's a thing we need to figure out now. And we're lucky that it is Ebola that's not, um, 
you know, super contagious and can infect 20 million people in, in a few months. So hopefully the different policymakers are, are watching the situation and, and learning from it so that when a different outbreak occurs under similar circumstances, they can be better prepared than they were this time. You really have to applaud these groups like Doctors Without Borders because, I mean, they're truly putting their life on the line to to help things like this and, and to, you know, halt these outbreaks. But as you said, 620 patients in Africa, that's going to spread. And uh, it's, it's pretty shocking. I mean, probably, do you know how many people were infected in the largest outbreak? It was like 11,400. So, I mean, it, it wouldn't be shocking if we got to that, considering, as you said, yeah. the number has tripled. We're, we're teetering on the edge of a cliff here because where the outbreak is centralized in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's very likely that it could spread to South Sudan and Uganda. So although the U.S. has stopped oper- – or although these NGOs have stopped operations for the time being in the areas of the DRC that are hit, they are over in South Sudan and they are over in Uganda where it's relatively safer – and they are starting to vaccinate the people that are likely to come in contact with refugees from the DRC. So that is that's the kind of our, our, our line of defense here to prevent that spread. Because once it enters the population of a different country, then you know, then it, that's what really did in the 2014 outbreak. It was spread over several countries. You know, obviously some were harder hit than others. But um, you know, luckily the Ebola outbreak is still contained to the DRC. Uh, but we did have one American physician flown back to the United States um, after a possible Ebola exposure like a week and a half or two weeks ago. And the physician's currently at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and um, he's being monitored, or he or she is being monitored. There's been no information of who the physician is, uh, what they were doing in the DRC, how they were exposed, or what their condition is. The last I heard, uh, the hospital staff is not treating the doctor as a patient he's more or he or she is more of like on an observation status just making um, sure yeah just making sure he he's he or she doesn't develop the virus but there is someone back in the united states that was confirmed uh, a possible exposure i guess confirmed possible who was confirmed to be exposed to it so uh the next topic we wanted to hit here as i said we have like an array of topics that we wanted to hit with you joe um, two Americans caught fighting for ISIS. Yeah, these dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I got to remain objective. What's funny about <laughs> these guys is like when you read about them, they're not, they're not young guys. I mean, they're like 34, but they're not super wow. healthy. You know, one of them had a glass eye and, uh, like before he went over to Syria, like he had, he lost his eye somehow in America and he was like, a substitute teacher in Houston and he was like I want to go so he self-radicalized in about 2004 watching YouTube videos um okay and he was he was like I'm gonna go over to Syria and Iraq and I'm gonna teach English to the terrorists in Mosul so that was his plan oh and then come (laughs) yeah 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 I mean I'm sure I'm sure it was for a good cause I mean I'm sure you know, the terrorists want to learn English to make it yeah, easier. Yeah. To, but so anyway, the guy finds himself uh, in the middle of Syria with a bunch of other expats from uh, Pakistan and one guy from Ireland. And next thing you know, the SDF pops in and says you're under arrest. And <laughs> now you're fucked. 
what's interesting is though these guys yeah i think the guy's name was like warren clark and the other one had a islamic name but they go by these monikers you know these islamic names yeah and they're both al amriki that's like the telltale american yeah yeah al amriki just means the american so yeah so they're both known as you know the american so they got picked up by the sdf with uh with these other guys and their their status is it's it's unknown what's going to happen to them it's it's Highly, you know, because the S- the SDF is not a, you know, they're the Syrian Democratic Forces, you know, aligned with the Kurds, but they don't have like a government. You know, they don't have a consulate in the U.S. Well, they're so they're they're kind of establishing a, a government uh, of sorts, but yeah, you're right. They're not internationally recognized. You know that yeah. So and I don't know if so I don't know if I'm right or wrong on this, Jack. You might be able to shed some more light on it than I can, but. I think it's going to be harder for the U.S. to negotiate for these guys' releases because there's no real point person to negotiate with. Oh, no, I don't think that'll be a problem at all. I think the Kurds will (laughs) hand these two idiots right over to us. No, really? Yeah, yeah. I don't don't think that's going to be an issue. I mean, there's uh, American troops over there working hand-in-glove with the Kurds and the SDF, so... um, I mean, maybe the the Kurds probably wanted to interrogate these guys for, you know, tactical intelligence value um, the day they, they were captured. I, I would not be surprised at that. But afterwards, um, I can't really see why the Kurds would want to hold on to these guys um, or what value they might have to them. So I, I think they'll probably hand them right over to the FBI. Um, but then, of course, the question becomes, what are we going to do with them? Yeah, what uh, what what district court, what federal court do you try them in? And what do you try them for? Are, are they, are they criminals well, or are they terrorists? International they terrorism. Um, I would put them on, on trial for terrorism, uh, aiding and abetting, providing material support to a terrorist group. And, and frankly, I would put them, um, on trial for, um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, basically for war crimes. I, yeah. uh, because of what that organization did to did to civilians over there. Um, yeah. So these guys were originally wanted, at least one of them was originally wanted to teach English. When he got arrested, they were planning on attacking civilians that were fleeing from this from this city. So, yeah, fuck so these, these aren't guys. good dudes. But, um, you know, it's interesting that the self-radicalization thing and the you know, yes. I, I know Alex Hollings yep. knows a ton about that. And, and so do you guys. Um, about the power of sitting by yourself watching YouTube videos, and the next thing you know, you're in Syria, and, and it's like, what kind? What's the individual personal psychology that plays into that? Because I do believe that what, someone who self radicalizes like that, like you're an American, like you hit the you hit the lotto, like you were born in this country, you ha- you haven't made basically, like for we've had um, people give all of that up to go and fight and die with jihadists in Somalia and Syria and, and elsewhere. And it's like, there is something broken inside of you on a personal level. It's not about politics or even religion. I think it's something about your personal psychology that leads you to leads you down that dark road. Um, one of the most interesting stories I ever heard about the self-radicalization was, um, there was a guy who he attacked a couple NYPD officers with an ax. Um, and the, yeah, I hit him in the head. Right. And, and the cops turned around and shot and killed him. Yep. And so when they, when the police checked out his apartment, they found, uh, all the normal, like ISIS bullshit you would expect, um, ISIS propaganda on the computer. The interesting thing that I was told was, 
packed up into a box off in the corner of the room was all the black liberation ideology stuff, the Mm -hmm. black Panther type stuff. So he was all into that. And then when ISIS came around, he packed it up, discarded that and started going Hmm. with this other. So there's something personal about it. There's something about, you know, your, your individual psychological makeup that leads you to that. I think. I, I kind of wish I had like a touch of that so that I could self-radicalize watching like healthy cooking videos on YouTube, <laughs> you know, or like workout stuff. I just am <laughs> such a piece of trash. I just can't, <laughs> I can watch it on YouTube and then I'm like, uh, I'll go get fast food. So like, it's like people are trying to fill a, a void inside of themselves. And, um, you know, we see it with, um, you see it with how polarized our politics are nowadays and people get into, or, or how people get into conspiracy theories. And it's, in that sense, they self radicalize the same way, watching YouTube videos, reading Reddit threads, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. I, I also think that that is why, um, as much as you'll hear people say that we need to shut down Guantanamo, even though there's not many guys even there right now but the people always say we have to shut down gitmo whenever that's been proposed i don't think there's been any congressman who is like yeah we're welcoming them into our district's prison system because they know that there's guys who are going to get out any day now they're they're you know ex-criminals who can't get a job they have nothing to live for they feel hopeless and if they end up being radicalized by one of these ex-terrorists at gitmo and then well, killing you, someone you can in their put, district. You can put them in a supermax prison where they're not going to have the opportunity to radicalize anybody. Um, there's one, I think, in Colorado. There, there's like six or seven that are considered like high security supermax prisons in the United States. Um, and I believe that they were prepared to try those guys at Gitmo um, right here in New York City for 9-11, um, a lot of them. And Obama, a, Obama tried to do that. And as I recall, he received pressure from Congress, not from the state of New York um, or the city of New York, not to do that. Wasn't there a big rift in the FBI about which field office would handle that, the terrorism case? Uh, not, not that I recall, but um, you could be right. It is a serious question, and I, I am one of those, uh, perhaps I have a minority opinion. I mean, I believe that we should have put our faith in the American legal system from the get-go, um, brought these terrorist dirtbags back here to the good old U.S. of A. and put them on trial um, and, and make them face American justice uh, as opposed to you know languishing in this weird um, state of limbo down in Guantanamo. Um, I, don't, I don't think that I, – I, I think that was the wrong plan from the get-go. Um, and now we found ourselves in this situation where – we rounded dudes up without, you know, due um, process. Adi- ad- without due process, without adequately collecting evidence. And now it's like one of these situations where we can't prosecute them adequately. And it's used as propaganda overseas. Sure, well, well, sure. This is what the U.S. does. They don't have rights. And, and it undermines our own faith in our, our judicial process, um, you know, that, that we can't as if we're, our laws and our way of life is inadequate now. Um, because we can't puts, handle this. I think it puts soldiers in kind of a weird position, especially the, the special operations guys, because is their mission now to act as a, as a police force and arrest, or is their mission now to go out and eliminate the enemy? Yes. You know? And when you put these guys in that gray area, you know, I mean, it's not, when, when I was uh, in Iraq, I mean, yeah, from the beginning, really, Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, we were – you know, hard charging special ops dudes 
Um, but we now found ourselves in this situation where um, we were like a combination of like special ops and FBI um, because we, we did have FBI agents coming with us out on target. And this is when what was called sensitive site exploitation was brought brought into play. And what that was was essentially um, evidence collection in a tactical environment. So you're establishing the chain of custody. Uh, for you know the the guy's belongings, his pocket litter, uh, any electronics he has, you know where did you find this guy? What room was he in? Um, it would stop short of like dusting the windowsill for fingerprints because we're we're in a war zone and we don't feel like getting IED'd on the way out, so we're not mm-hmm. going to spend twenty four hours on the target. Um, but we were now involved in the business of collecting evidence so that these guys could be prosecuted in court um, in in Iraqi court, though, not in, in American courts. You know, it kind of it kind of reminds me of and this is not an original thought. I, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but but someone said, you know, it, a lot of people want to send the military to solve problems that are outside their purview. You know, that yeah, seems to absolutely. be like, oh, I don't know what to do with the military. And, um, you know, following the National Guard here, you know, that's been a, a big thing is, oh, you know, we can always call on the National Guard. But what does that mean? You know, is that is that really their job? You know, when it comes to, to doing law enforcement and stuff like that, you know, it's the, the military has a, a specific mission. And I think sometimes we ask too much, like not maybe, maybe not too much, but things that aren't really in their purview to go handle. Well, how- I think it's. How, how nuts is it if you look at the incredibly complicated histories and social dynamics of a country like Iraq or Afghanistan, we train, you know, kids from uh, from North Dakota and Florida and New York and California. We put them through basic training and then we plop them down and in the middle of one of these countries and expect them to uh, carry out nation building and counterinsurgencies. Uh, it, it, it's kind of insane. Um, you, you can't possibly expect that to be a success. That makes me think of, uh, Abu Ghraib and, and the soldiers who get caught abusing the prisoners. And when you look at them there for the majority, 18, 19 year old kids, you know, in, and they're from like, uh, somewhere on the East coast, the reserve reserve unit, I think it was a reserve unit. They're 18, 19, you know, they just graduated high school. A year before, now they're in Iraq where it's totally different climate. It's scary. They're getting mortared. They're with some of the most dangerous foreign human beings in the world. They're working night shift by themselves. They're scared, and you got people telling them, "Hey, you know, you're the, the you're right here. You're the last line of defense, uh, you know, to stop the next terrorist attack." And you're a 19 year old kid, you know, and you have no bearing on. And you on give stuff a, like you give a 19 year old kid that kind of power over powerless civilians or i mean some of them were probably terrorists i'm sure but also just regular people who got swept up into prison um nothing good's really going to come out of that um and i mean i've been told that we we may very not have heard the end of abu Ghraib, but there was other stuff happening there that has not been reported um shit i've been told about by people who are there that's just like jesus christ yeah, they, the only thing that got pressed was that one specific unit, you know, and they, and I think the only reason that got pressed is because the guys took pictures. Uh, I talked to somebody who was, uh, who was stationed there at the time, and he said he personally heard the screaming because they would have the male inmates 
take uh, turns uh, gang raping another male inmate. Damn. Yeah. Whew. It's pretty dark. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of this stuff has not come out. So uh, that, that whole scandal could blow up all over again. I'd be, I'd be curious to see where the people who were in charge, you know, the, the, the mid, the mid grade officers that were over that, where they are today, you know? Yeah. I think there was one general did end up having her career ended. Um, yeah. The, the woman in that picture, right? Oh, well, no, that specialist went to fucking prison. Yeah. yeah. Rightly so. But there was one general who was, you know, uh, a female general, I believe somewhere up. Yeah, on She was a, she was like a one star. Yeah. MP. Mm-hmm. And I, and I believe she was, uh, retired after that. If I recall correctly. Well, you mentioned um, the National Guard unit that you've been talking to, and, and we spoke about this at length on the last episode. Um, for people who haven't heard the last episode, if you want to give like a brief uh, background on who they are yeah. and what you've been working on, and then I'd, I'd love to hear an update on the story. Yeah, so uh, I'm doing a multi-piece uh, series about um, this, this 256 Infantry Brigade Combat Team, uh, specifically the 2nd and the 108th Cavalry Squadron, which is the reconnaissance element of that, of that uh, IBCT. And I'm following them from the time they came out of annual training last summer and how they're ramping up to go down to Fort Polk to the Joint Readiness Training Center, which is essentially a mock deployment um, to certify that unit for a real wartime deployment. So the story is how does a guard commander take his unit and get it prepared to prepare to go to war and what's it like for um you know the platoon leaders and what's it like for the individual soldiers so i'm trying to approach it from three different aspects um you know what's it like you know getting ready to go to that that simulated deployment and then you know the year following is what they call the ready the ready year which means that that the 256 will be available to be deployed uh, what they're likely to do is go over and do some training with the foreign force uh, they're looking at the Pacific, but with the threat environment today, you never know. Right. Um, so the last article I published about them was about their individual weapons qualifications. And that kind of got into how uh, this unit in particular being a cavalry squadron, you know, their mission objective is not to go out and close with destroy the enemy with small arms. It's to observe and report, um, you know, let the rest of the force know what the enemy's doing. Uh, destroy the enemy reconnaissance effort. And, um, you know, the way they do that is, you know, they kind of stay hidden and they kind of, um, you know, they don't want to get in gunfights. If they're going to engage the enemy, they want to do it with close air or they want to do it with, with air support or with artillery. Um, but so you're with soldiers who know now with this individual weapons qualification, they know that, Hey, if I'm using this weapon, shit's gone bad. Um, and that's been a really interesting perspective. And I got to learn all about how they go and qualify with their weapons and, and, and kind of what it means to the different soldiers and just spend more time with them and, you know, kind of get a feel for what they're working on as a unit, you know, what they discovered uh, during summer camp or not summer camp, but, but annual training last year was that they need to work on their uh, base defense. You know, if they set up a talk in the middle of the, of the forest, they want to make sure that it's, they're able to secure a perimeter and stuff like that. Uh, but recently, I, I just went down to uh, Jackson Barracks, which is the Louisiana National Guard headquarters in New Orleans. It's in the Ninth Ward. And I spoke at length with the officer who's in charge of the stateside mission, 
So they're, um, you know, they're what they call all hazards mission, which is responding to natural disasters, responding to uh, chemical spills, responding to civil unrest. So I got to learn a lot about that aspect of the mission. Um, I'm still writing that piece up. I'm going to have it published soon. But what's unique about the Louisiana National Guard is they've had so much real-world experience responding to the all-hazard mission. And then given the kind of threat environment in Louisiana with not only the weather but all the petrochemical infrastructure we have here, uh, the Louisiana Guard takes a really active part in preparing for those things. But what I learned probably was the most interesting was kind of, you know, if there's a – if there's an emergency and you hear the governor say, we've called out the national guard, what does that mean exactly? You know, does the guard roll in and take charge or do they just kind of hang back? So I really got insight into how the guard plays into the, uh, rest of the response effort. Mm -hmm. So in Louisiana, you know, we don't, we don't have counties like the rest of the country has like different counties. Does that make sense? Yeah. In Louisiana, we have parishes. So, you know, New Orleans is Orleans Parish. I lived in St. Tammany Parish. And there's a person who's over the county called the parish president. And during any kind of emergency, the parish president is the person who is going to head the response effort. Um, so there, if, if the parish president wants to utilize the National Guard, he has a liaison that works with him full time that is going to facilitate getting the guard deployed and to go out on either search and rescue missions or to set up, uh, you know, field hospitals or to, uh, you know, aid the police if there's a, you know, a riot or something like that. But, um, you know, the guard, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s had really bad optics with uh, being called out for crowd control. Yeah. And we've really seen a, a guard, you know, in modern times, they've, they've really put that, that mission on the back burner and, um, whether it be a, uh, just not something that they want to do anymore, or it's because the, the police have become more militarized is really a very small part of their mission now. And, um, that's something they kind of want to stay away from is doing, you know, law enforcement because from their, you know, from their perspective is that's not their job and they don't, yeah. you know, that's up to the, the parish, the sheriff of the parish. And, um, so I thought it was interesting on how they've kind of taken a backseat to that that law enforcement model because, you know, you've always heard that, oh, the governor's going to send in the National Guard. Well, if that's the case, the National Guard is going to take orders from the sheriff. They're not going to show up and tell the sheriff how to control the situation. They're going to do, you know, what the sheriff asked them to do, which is most likely going to be, um, you know, support or, or crowd control. But it's not going to be, you know, going in and arresting people and, and you know, trying to hurt people because, you know, the guardsmen – you know, they are from these communities and that's what makes it such a unique organization. You know, the, the soldiers don't, that, that's not, that's not a mission that they are eager to do at all. You know, they, I've, I've talked to hundreds of guard soldiers. Not one of them has ever been like, I really want to do that. That mission is something that they dread and <laughs> I want to shoot know, protesting hippies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's like some yeah. of like the optics that they get. And like, I just yeah. haven't found it to be true, um, which is good. You know, and like the guys that I talked to down at Fort uh, or at Jackson Barracks, like, you know, all of them had a, a copy of the Constitution sitting on their desk. And they're like, you know, this is the document that we work on and we're here to support. We're not here to um, to go in and be an instrument of, of destruction. They did a pretty good job during Hurricane Katrina, didn't they? 
Yeah. What was interesting about Katrina is um, a lot of that was the, the army reserve because the Louisiana guards main force was deployed to Iraq. Mm. So you had some elements at home station that were able to immediately deploy, but it was a lot of different uh, reserve components because the two five, six was out, um, you know, as a, uh, as a, as an armor unit fighting in, uh, I think it was Ramadi. And I, I was actually thinking about this just last night for some reason, but the SF, uh, the special forces, national guard teams get called yeah. in for disaster relief. And also I know guys who have been called in for, um, what's, you, you know, critical infrastructure security. So like when the Baltimore protests were happening, those guys got called in and they were like, um, patrolling around the ports and yeah. things like that. Um, and, I'm, glad, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, with the way FEMA delineates, um, you know, those different critical, critical infrastructure points, you know, they consider them emergency support functions. And one of that's utilities, one of that's hospitals. And that could definitely be a guard mission is to secure those, those like you said, those critical, uh, you know, whether it be a, a supply area or a patient care center. You know, that is definitely something that is in the purview of their of their mission. And that would be a more realistic deployment of the guard during like any kind of civil unrest than seeing them, you know, go toe to toe with protesters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in Louisiana, what's, you know, cause we have all pipelines and petrochemical plants and, um, I've heard some horror stories come out of the factory South of New Orleans that makes the dust that covers Cheetos. So we got a lot of <laughs> dangerous chemicals down here. Um, so the Louisiana National Guard has a has a full time team that works, you know, they kind of operate like a fire department, you know, twenty four seven, and their only job is to you know respond to these kind of uh, you know hazmat situations. So I'm gonna I'm working right now with with the guard to to go visit with those guys and see what their mission is and um, you know get kind of a feel for their training, which actually got me thinking about. Um, you know, some other different stories. And I think it'd be interesting to go and learn about different organizations that have, uh, you know, rescue missions in the U S in unique environments. Mm -hmm. So for example, where I went to EMT school in Florida, my teacher was a firefighter paramedic at Kennedy space center and he was on the astronaut rescue team. Oh, cool. And those, those guys, you know, zip line out of, the helicopters onto the pad and they have a really unique mission. So I was like, that would be a cool story. And I was just up in Aspen, uh, for a wedding, uh, which I was talking to, I was talking to Ed Durack cause he lives out in Colorado. I was like, man, I don't know how you do it. There's like no auction up there. I'm stuck in hmm. like people who live up in the mountains. I, I'm impressed with them, but, uh, you know, they have a big, I guess, snow, snow patrol up there. I was like, you know, that's, that'd be a really interesting story is, is how those guys operate at that altitude. Or, you know, there's, there's big wave lifeguards in, in Hawaii. They, you know, take helicopters out to swimmers and they have kind of like a, a rescue swimmer program. So there's like a lot of different rescue organizations in the U.S. that are kind of unknown. They have very niche uh, jobs. I think that'd be something uh, that I would be interested in learning e about. ESU here in New York City has, um, in addition to having, you know, their whole counterterrorism um, you know, SWAT mission, they also do, um, high risk rescues. So I guess, really? if, yeah. Um, it'd be interesting. I always wanted to sit down and talk to those guys. Cause I'm sure if you reached out to them, um, or reached out to NYPD, 
if, I mean, if you were able to sit down with those guys, I bet they have some pretty really unique um, real life rescues and probably training that they do as well. Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of different groups out there that you just don't, like, I never knew that. Yeah. I always thought ESU was the NYPD's SWAT team. I didn't know they did that kind of. Yeah, they, they, well, yeah, they are. They just have the additional mission of high risk rescue, which uh, how they define high risk. I mean, I don't know if it's like somebody dangling off the side of a skyscraper (laughs) or like, how do they define high risk? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I, I, I don't know how people do the heights, man. I'm going to be, I'm going to be straight up and honest about that. I, I get weak in the knees, like uh, after the third floor, like I, like I got to go meet the coast guard guy tomorrow on the 13th floor of the federal building. And I'm just like, ah, oh. like, that's really high up there. <laughs> well, yeah. So be on the lookout for more of those from Joseph Lefebvre, the uh, national guard story. The last thing that we wanted to get into here before we uh, wrap things up were was that the past couple of weeks on the show, I've been teasing out this news rep financial report for people who want to secure a brighter future by investing in the uh, defense sector and learning a little bit more about what's going on in the stock market. Um, But you're someone who knows a lot more than me about what we've been doing. So I kind of want to hear that from you and maybe give some of our audience an incentive to go to the FinRep tab on the newsrep.com and sign up for that today. Yeah, it's a it's a monthly newsletter, and um, you know myself or one of the other other writers, like I think Stavros has done a lot of work with it. Which, by the you way, know, we'll, Stavros is going to be in studio um, later this month, and from what I've seen, he's like he's like our top writer at the moment. I think. Yeah, he's killing it, man. He is. What, what's nice about and before I talk about FinRep, what's nice about uh, you know the news rep and, and the different writers is how it's like such a uh, a team environment. I don't know if that comes from the fact that that everyone but me is ex-military, but it's like, we have like friendly competition between us, like to, to get the top spot, but there's like a lot of collaboration and, um, you know, like I, I read what the other guys write and it, I think it's really good. And, uh, you know, and I'll tell them that and, you know, guys will reach out to me and, and say, Hey, you know, I really enjoyed your piece. Like, like George hand reached out to me the other day and told me that he liked one of my pieces. And I love George, you know, hand. for George to yeah, say that he likes something. I mean, that guy's like a fusion of Sun Tzu and, uh, <laughs> uh Captain America, GI <laughs> Joe and he James is. Bond, you know, for, so for him to be like, Hey, I like that is, you know, to me means a lot, you know, so that's, what's really nice about, about this organization. I think from an insider perspective is, is how everyone collaborates and, um, you know, we kind of feed off each other, but yeah, so, so FinRep, uh, yeah, we're kind of, you know, we're not, we're not giving like stock tips, you know, it's not really our purview, but we're kind of giving insight into, to different technologies or different trends that are going on inside different sectors and different industries that you might not think to look at. So I know the one I'm writing about is, is, is kind of focused on some different technology, uh, surrounding AI and some different things that are being done done with that but it's it's a really nice it's kind of a deep dive and a really niche uh technologies and, and trends and stuff like that that you're not you're really going to find anywhere else um because it's not you know it's not headline grabbing it, it's really more intelligence than it is um you know a news story so that's kind of the benefit of it you get like a, a it's it's like financial intelligence would be the best way i could describe it yeah and it, and it could make people money in the future reading this so we hope you all sign up um, I guess with that, unless there's anything else, go follow uh, Joe on Twitter at Lafave Joseph, which is L A F A V E Joseph on Twitter. 
keep checking out his articles on thenewsrep.com, which Alex said last episode will soon be shortened to newsrep.com. But in the meantime, go to thenewsrep.com. Uh, anything else we didn't cover? I mean, I think I think we covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, I, I feel good about it. Um, I tried out some jokes, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to writing for now. So. But, no, um, I, I dig know, it, man. And, and I remember we were, you know, to take you guys behind the scenes, we were saying uh, that last episode people were breaking balls because they were like, why does he keep clicking his pen? There's no pen clicking this episode for the people who uh, made a big deal over that. I, I didn't think it was that big a deal. I mean, I did notice it as I was editing the show, but I did get a couple of emails. They were like, this is unlistenable. <laughs> I didn't think it was like- that bad. A little bit, A little bit of hyperbole there. There was the pen, and then there was the guy with the lawnmower who ran over yep. that St. Patrick grass like twenty times. So I've sanitized myself. <laughs> I can't. I can't go to my house because I have nine dogs there right now. Um, so I'm at a friend's apartment on the third floor in an undisclosed location with uh, no electronics running. So I, we should be good for that. I uh, appreciate the only thing it, I can man. think of is, um, you know, I just like if if you're a listener and you haven't subscribed to, to news rep yet. I encourage you to do so. Not, not just cause I work there, but just from a, from a, from an outsider looking in, it, it's really a cool community. And I think it's really unique, um, in the, the news industry because, you know, the, the, the different, uh, subscribers talk to each other. There's chat rooms and everyone talks on the message board and you kind of get to know each other. And, you know, us as the writers, we get to engage, directly with our audience, which I think for me has been, has been, uh, super beneficial because, you know, I get to talk to my audience and they can say, Hey, you know, this is not something that we really enjoy just fire or, Hey, this is something we really do enjoy. So it helps me deliver content that that's kind of geared towards their interest. And it's just been a really fun and it's a really low key and collaborative environment, both with writers and with subscribers. And I think it's a really unique, uh, company has a really unique, some really unique things to offer um it's subscribers so i I encourage everyone listening if if you haven't subscribed yet to do it because it's a you get to become part of a a really welcoming community you know i mean i I was you know i i'm not prior military so i didn't really know anybody um coming in but i've been (laughs) i've been welcomed with open arms you know and I, i feel like like alex hollings that's you know that's my best friend i never met you know so I encourage everyone to uh, to subscribe. That's my pitch. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Cool, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Always appreciate you coming on with us, and we'll do it again soon. I think I I think this is um, different for people to hear, like a roundup of different world news stories. Um, you know, and I, I think that's the beauty of the show. Sometimes we have like spotlight interviews from guys who have books out, and then sometimes we cover news that you know, you're not necessarily hearing about on CNN or Fox News. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're having Ed, Ed Derrick back on aren't, soon, aren't you? Yep, next episode. Ask him, I wrote this down, ask him the story, to tell you the story about how he first met Marines while mountain climbing. Because I, I, I interviewed Ed, like, last week about um, his new book coming out, War Moments, which is a, a, a fusion of images and, yep. and stories that kind of tell the narrative of the war on terror. I don't want to pitch it. That's his job, but um, I'm going to release a book review on news rep uh, in the next couple of days about it. But, but Ed has this amazing story of how he first met Marines while mountain climbing in Alaska. And it's uh, my job was on the floor. So make, please 
uh, ask him to tell you that story. It's amazing. All right. Take note of it. Yeah. I'm so. looking forward to having him back. I mean, it's uh, it's always interesting which episodes um, people respond to. And last year, that was our second most listened to episode. Um, and it, I don't think it's necessarily because Ed Derrick is, you, you know, uh, like a very known guy. I mean, we have more well-known guys on the show like Brad Thor. But when I think when they saw that he was talking about Extortion 17 and Operation Red Wings in a really frank and... Um, uh, in, in a manner that that went to like the heart of the story and these yeah. are the facts yep. this is the footage that we've seen and I, I read his book um and he just put an incredible amount of research into the the crash um and also just uh military rotary wing aviation in general um i i mean he he really did a public service i think with that book and explaining what happened and, and explaining to the public what rotary wing military aviation is about military helicopters and pilots and the technical aspects of it and how it all works. I mean, it's just a, a tremendous job. And, um, and you're not talking about his latest book there. You're talking about his past one. Yeah. Yeah. His latest one. I, I just, I mean, we got we a copy got, yeah. sent of it and I just looked at it and I mean, he took some beautiful, uh, shots, uh, you know, it's a, a photography book. Um, so I'm looking forward to flipping through that, um, this afternoon and looking at it. Um, I sh- yeah, the biggest, I think the biggest compliment that I think I've seen Ed get is, is, you know, not from guys like us, but, you know, I, I'm friends with Ed on Facebook and, um, you know, he's friends with a lot of the, the soldiers that he, or soldiers and Marines that he followed and a lot of their families. And they're always giving him positive feedback. And you can read that on his, on his Facebook, on his personal Facebook wall. And it's like, you know, if, if the guys that he's writing about and they're, families are are looking forward to reading about what he's writing about and they're thanking him for writing it i think that speaks volumes to um you know to his work so yeah i'm really looking forward to that interview i mean we have a lot of other stuff on the horizon uh peter gidry is going to come on as as i've been um looking forward to going to talk about kratom being used to treat ptsd um as i kind of said to alex i'd like to be ahead of the curve on that one because um, I've heard a lot about Kratom, and, and in Florida, it's extremely popular, but I think a lot of people across the U.S. haven't even heard of it, and people are touting it as, the, like, this med- this uh, miracle drug for PTSD and people like Peter, so I'd, I'd like to hear that perspective. Um, we're going to have Stavros in studio, as mentioned, Michael Broderick, who's going to be on the next season of True Detective. That's um, cool. Yeah, who's also a former yeah. Marine. Uh, and Fred Galvin will be back on because of the Navy's involvement in the yeah, Marsoc yeah, 7 yeah. story to give us an update on that. So, um, yeah, man, thanks for coming on, Joe. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Yep. And uh, I also, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, um, I finished reading that book, uh, Ranger Games, uh, by Ben Blum, yep. which is about um, the 2nd Ranger Battalion soldiers who uh robbed a bank in tacoma in washington state uh it was uh 2007 i believe so this is one of the bank robbers cousins yep wrote this book as a 400 page like deep dive on um not it's not so much a a, a who done it it's more about because the facts of the bank robbery itself are pretty clear cut but it's about the why and the mentality and the mentality. Me. And it's about ranger culture. Um, it's about his own family and their family's culture. It's about the other participants in the, in the bank robbery. Um, there's another ranger and then two civilians. 
Um, so he really, really went in depth on it. And I mean, it was a fascinating book to read. Um, so I'm going to, uh, see if I can twist the author's arm a little bit because he, he's out here in New York city. So I'm hoping we can get him in for an interview. I'd love to talk to him about the book. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, we're, we're basically booked up until February right now. And it's a good problem to have that so many people are reaching out who are great guests and, and I get so many suggestions and it's like, I, I can't even keep up with all of it. We um, have some good people lined up. Um, we have some, uh, um, you know, army wives coming yeah, on that'll to discuss be on. some, uh, some important subjects actually. And then, uh, air force PJ Douglas. Yeah. Doug, my buddy, Doug from, uh, Columbia, who is a air force pararescue guy. And I believe, Oh geez, I'll have to ask him what his degree. And I, I believe it's something like sports physiology or something like that, which we've only had about, I think maybe two air force PJs and, and we've had BK of course. This, but. this dude is, uh, him and BK know each other, uh, uh small community. Um, Doug is a, you know, PT stud, very smart guy. Um, and he runs a, uh, a, a company, maybe it's a consultancy, but they doing fitness instruction and stuff called uh, nice. resilient. Um, just all around good guy, and uh, I appeared on his podcast one day, and I had always wanted to have him come on ours because he's just an interesting cat. Um, so we got him lined up. Yeah, I'm excited because our audience often says you guys have plenty of Marines on, SEALs on, <laughs> Army Rangers, Green Berets. Where's the love for the Air Force community? So that's true. It's yeah. true. We don't have enough of them on. We had on um, the the most previous, uh, not uh, Air Force PJ, but uh, like, like Lampy. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. He and he's the one who was um, who was introduced to us by Mike Vining, right? Or am I no, thinking of is that no. Doug Raritan? Uh, no, uh, so Lampy reached out to us because he heard the Mike Vining interview and that's was right. like, was like, he he enjoyed it. He was like, you guys did a good job, and he was uh, he, he won. was the Cobar Towers. No, 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 no. He was the Air Force guy. Remember, we got through half of it, and we need to reschedule him to come on and talk about the other half. Gotcha, yeah. There's so many interviews we've done. He, yeah, he was like the father of the of the CCT, like yes, Call for yeah, Fire yeah, yeah, guys, yeah. in a lot of ways. I remember this, and, yes. and, But his career is so extensive. But David Raritan was Air Force, too, right? Ye- That's who I'm thinking of. That's why. I, I believe. Cobar Towers. I believe so. Yeah. He was an EOD guy. Yep, he was. Um... But we need to get uh, Lampy back on because we got we we just kind of scratched the surface that the first half of his career, and we need to talk about the rest of it because he went all the way up. I mean, he he was in SOCOM, and I mean, guy did so much. Yeah, I'm gonna make note of that. I should make note of that right now that we need to get my, Mike my, Lampy back on. Yeah. Yeah, let's keep that in mind maybe for February. Yeah, I'll do uh, it because we, right we after the show. I'll, you we, know. we had him scheduled, but then he had to cancel the second interview because he had uh, he had some personal things he had to attend to. Uh, but we'll get him back on. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it right after the show. We'll get him back on. That was a good one. And Mike Vining was actually trying to help me um, get interview some other old school guys. Um, and, um, and there's another one who's receptive. I, I'm not going to... I'm going to spoil it now and uh, and get ahead of myself. But a guy that would be, for me personally, be one of the biggest interviews we've ever done. Um, and I think he's game to come on, but we have to, um, or it, it just he had some personal stuff he had to sort out also. Um, and if we can get that individual on, it would be amazing I, because this guy is the real deal. Um, and so, by the way, just to 
fact check myself here. I am right. David Raritan from episode 343, yes. Air Force EOD. Yep. So, you know, we've had probably six or so Air Force guys, but I mean, it just pales in comparison to the amount of Marines, Army, Navy who have been on the show. Marines are everywhere. You can't you can't get rid of them. They're just all over the freaking place. Uh, <laughs> we used to joke about it when I went to Columbia because there's, there's like Marines. Like a, there's there's a good number of veterans, like 300 or 350 of us up there. And tons and tons of Marines. And I mean, so all those jokes about Marines eating crayons and stuff and, and eating Elmer's glue. Um, I, I mean, presumably they're pretty smart because they can go to college and get degrees. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of them for up the there. site, like James Powell going on to work in the CIA. I super, mean, super good guy. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm making fun of them, but a lot of good Marines out there. But yeah, they uh, like infesting. They're just everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Um, all right. Well, wrapping things up here. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this. This is funny. I was editing uh, the last show and I noticed that like 40 minutes before the end of the show, I'm like wrapping things up here. And then somehow and then we get, bullshitted for another hour. Well, it was with me and uh, Alex. And then I some <laughs> we somehow get into a whole nother topic. I'm like, really not wrapping things up here. 40 <laughs> minutes left in the show. Um, but yeah, truly wrapping things up here. Be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be and gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room, Drew Wallace, all of those guys, they're currently working on bringing you 100% custom products this year. Everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. I am not going to lie, for a while there, I wasn't receiving the premium crate. I was uh, in previous years earlier on, so I, I want to get acquainted again with like what's the new stuff that we have in there. So... I'm going to keep you guys up to date with as I receive new stuff and tease out what some of the cool stuff is. So all the stuff in, from previous crates is like scattered around my apartment and I put to use those binoculars and all that stuff. Um, it's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Also, as a reminder for all those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Uh, and at the end of that interview with Joe, we talked about the news rep financial report. Once again, this is exclusive information that you can act on today to, to, to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be lucrative if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise. The NewsRep Financial Newsletter Advantage, our team offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, 
unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, full access to news reps, foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, and access to our team of experts and analysts. Just go to the FinRep tab at the top of the newsrep.com to sign up. That's FinRep at the newsrep.com. Check it out. And once again, I should let you guys know to check out pelicancoolers.com. If you go there, you'll get a free 22-ounce tumbler. You just got to add that to your cart. And I was looking um, for you guys where you could find that. Go to the drinkware section at the top. Add that with your order, that tumbler, and you'll get that for free when you use the promo code SOFTREP. So get on that. And uh, you know what? One last plug. Go pre-order Jack Murphy's book, Murphy's Law. It's it's coming in, what, we're about three or four months away? Yeah, man, April. Um, yeah, you can pre-order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. That's a, a big deal. Pre-orders are a big deal. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I'm going over the book. We're going over the second pass of the book now. Um getting together, you know, like, uh, cover blurbs for it. Um, what else is going on with it? A bunch of like little details, you know, that, that we're just hashing out because we're kind of in the home stretch right now, but, uh, it's looking pretty good. Oh, another thing I can say, I can announce is, uh, I will be narrating the audiobook. Nice. That's, that's yeah. great. Yep. So, um, I'm going to do that. I, I asked, uh, if I'm allowed to go off script, and agent, my agent asked, he's like, yeah, you're going to go on like some drunken rants. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, probably, <laughs> but people will probably dig that. Though. Uh, no, uh, but, um, I think that'll be cool. Um, that's also incentive to buy both then to buy the, to read the book and then the audio book for your additional comments. Yeah. And I, I mean, if you listen to the audio book, you know, you're kind of hearing it straight from the author and you know, you get to hear all of my smart ass comments <laughs> and, uh, and, and colorful four letter words. Um, and uh, my pronunciation of military acronyms will be correct. Nice. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I know this audience is too. So go pre-order Murphy's Law. Um, we're just a few months away. And uh, yeah, getting those pre-orders in is a really big deal. Yeah, I'm absolutely. I'm excited for it. Um, yeah, so I, I guess with that, have a great weekend, guys. Next episode, we're going to be back with Ed Derrick. You guys loved the, the last episode with him. So we're excited to have him back on. And as we said, a ton of stuff um, in the future that we have up until February. So be on the lookout. Tell people about the podcast. Keep spreading the word. Um, follow the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at SoftRep Radio. And that's it, guys. You've been listening to SoftRep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRep Radio. SoftRep Radio.